It's Wednesday, March 27th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. All charges dropped and record wiped clean. Actor Jesse Smollett, who was charged with disorderly conduct for filing a false police report about being the victim of an alleged hate crime, has been cleared. But the story is not over. Prosecutor Joe Magatz, who dropped the charges, said they did not exonerate Jesse. Amir Madhani, reporter for USA Today, joins us from Chicago to discuss why charges were dropped. Next, attorney Michael Avenatti has been arrested and charged in New York with trying to extort Nike for more than $20 million. Avenatti claimed to represent an AAU coach who had evidence that Nike employees paid off some basketball players and demanded payment himself or make the news public. Kendall Baker, sports editor at Axios, joins us for What's Lost in the Headlines, the dark side of college basketball bribery. Finally, the CBD boom is here and the FDA is having a hard time keeping up. CBD is a marijuana and hemp extract that does not give you the high of THC and it is blurring the lines between a drug and a dietary supplement. Sarah Overmall, healthcare reporter at Politico, joins us for how the FDA plans to handle CBD. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I've been truthful and consistent on every single level since day one. I would not be my mother's son if I was capable of one drop of what I've been accused of. This has been an incredibly difficult time, honestly one of the worst of my entire life. Joining us now is Amir Madhani, reporter for USA Today based in Chicago. Amir, you were there at the courtroom today as activities were unfolding. Prosecutors dropped all charges against Empire star Jesse Smollett weeks after he was indicted on 16 counts of disorderly conduct for filing a false police report and saying he was the victim of an alleged hate crime. What do we know? Why were these charges dropped? The prosecutor's office is basically saying that they've come to the decision that it was easier and more appropriate to come to terms with taking bond money from Smollett that was forfeited and dropping charges, that his record is relatively clean. And they're basically saying it's not worth pursuing a charge of this nature, but he's giving up about $10,000 in bond. It was 10% of the $100,000 bond that he had to post. As the police and Mayor Emanuel have said, that's nothing for the amount of resources that was put into this case. Further perplexing is that Police Superintendent Eddie Johnson says he was given no forewarning that this was coming, and detectives were given no forewarning this was coming. The way I found out about it is I was sitting at my computer around 9.25, and I get an email from Smollett legal team saying, we have an emergency court hearing, and Smollett and his attorneys are going to be speaking afterwards. So I rushed to the courthouse. My initial thinking was maybe he has something that he wants to go out of the country for, and he's trying to get special permission or something of that nature. This was really unexpected. So the thought is, is that since he's a first-time offender with a lot of this stuff, he would basically only get community service and he has already done a lot of stuff for the community before. So they're just going to kind of call it even and let him go. The assistant state's attorney, Joe Magatz, who was uh, made the decision to drop the charges at the end of it said that, you know, he didn't find any problems with the investigation, but they're not necessarily exonerating him. They just don't see he's a threat to public safety. So this is the easy way to go. But the judge signed a motion to seal the case and wipe his record clean. So it is like he's getting off on this. It's unusual. I know that you might be a little bit more of a celebrity than I am in the radio business, but if this happened 
to me, I don't think I'd be treated in such a manner. And that's what's atypical about this situation. As the police department's noting, it's not too often that innocent people forgo their, their bond money. It's not typical for a situation to go away in this manner, especially a case that was so high profile. And the importance of why prosecuting this case is because you want hate crime victims to come forward when something happens. And this is questionable. And they're saying they're not exonerating him. But at the same time, Smollett is saying, I was on the level at every single point in this case. So there's no admission of culpability beyond saying, yeah, I'll give you my $10,000 to make this go away. And his attorney, Patricia Brown-Holmes, said this was not part of a plea deal or anything like that. Just trying to make it more clear that he is off on these charges. So it's not like, hey, we just cut a deal. He's admitting guilt. And I just have to ask, what about all of the stuff that happened during the investigation? There's video of these two brothers who even Patricia Brown Holmes admitted that they beat him up, that they beat up Jesse Smollett. Right. She said it in her statement today. Who knows? Are they going to be charged with anything now? They testified to the grand jury. They have video of them buying the right. materials for this. What do we do with all this evidence? I think nothing is the, the short answer. This doesn't go any further than what we've seen. And, you know, they were forthcoming with their testimony by, and went from being suspects to people of interest to witnesses by providing police with that testimony. The other weird part of this, beyond not giving the heads up to police that they were, the prosecutors were dropping this case, is you usually give the courtesy when you're prosecuting a case and you drop it to witnesses of the crime. No witnesses were notified that the prosecutors were going forward with this. The transparency was a little weird. I found out because Smollett's team wanted to make sure reporters were there to hear him proclaim his innocence afterwards. Rahm Emanuel said that this is a whitewash of justice and said that there was a problem from top to bottom, that this is not on the level. Early on in this, the state's attorney, Kim Fox, recused herself from the case. Did we ever find out why she recused herself? Yes. We did. She had some conversations with a family member who's never identified of uh, Smollett, who wanted the FBI to take over investigation of the case and was pressing that and asked her if she could intervene. And another person who started that conversation was Tina Chen, who's a uh, prominent Chicago attorney, but is probably more familiar to your audiences. She was the chief of staff during the Obama administration years to the first lady, Michelle Obama. Wow. So, and so because of that, just those connections, she decided to recuse herself. Because of those conversations, yeah. yeah. And she had right. gone forward and she had asked Eddie Johnson, you know, the family has concerns. They think that the FBI should be handling this case. Yeah. In one sense, this is all over because the charges were dropped, but the FBI is still looking into that threatening letter that was right. sent to Jesse Smollett, which police also think he sent to himself. It's in the realm of possibility that something can come from the FBI on this. But in the big picture, the FBI has bigger fish to fry. Right. And I guess it's bothered a lot of people, whether you agree with whether Smollett's are innocent or guilty. If you live in the city and the number of homicides and unsolved shootings, non-fatal shootings that happen each year and that are happening now, even as violence has creeped down a little bit, this was also a case that didn't deserve the amount of attention and resources that police gave it, considering all else that's going on in the city. That is the theme the state's attorney said that they don't see Jesse Smollett as a threat to public safety. And that's one of the reasons there of why the charges are dropped. Amir Madhani, reporter for USA Today based in Chicago. Thank you very much for joining us. All right. Have a good one.
kind of this long game of acquiring talent, if you will, and the way they've been acquiring that talent is very shady, under-the-table ways and trying to get prospects to go to certain schools. Sometimes that those payments work, sometimes they don't. But I, everybody kind of assumed this was already happening. Joining us now is Kendall Baker, sports editor at Axios. We're going to be talking about Michael Avenatti. He's in a whole heap of trouble right now. He rose to fame last year as the lawyer for Stormy Daniels, who, as we know, all their her problems with President Trump. But he was arrested and charged with attempting to extort more than $20 million from Nike. What do we know about the charges against Michael Avenatti? He's been charged with extortion attempts. Basically, what prosecutors are saying happened is he and a co-conspirator met with Nike last week, claiming to represent a former AAU coach who they said had evidence that Nike had paid at least three players. And he basically blackmailed them, said, we will make these payments public unless you pay my client because one and a half million dollars. Then on top of that, which was very bold, he basically demanded, you also need to hire me to conduct an internal investigation of you for which you would have to then pay me more than $9 million. And I'm sure that investigation would have been on the up and up anyways too, right? So Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, so this unindicted co-conspirator has been identified as celebrity attorney Mark Garagos. He represented actor Jesse Smollett, Chris Brown, Michael Jackson, a bunch of people. We're talking about how he was trying to extort them from this money to do this investigation for about 15 to $25 million. When they weren't going for some of that, he said, okay, well, how about we do something else? How about just a one-time payment of $22.5 million? And then I'll walk away at that point. So some of these meetings were audio or video recorded by Nike. So they have Michael Avenatti saying all this stuff. Yeah, exactly. And I think from Nike's standpoint, we don't know what happened here, but let's just assume for a second that maybe payments were made, which which has been speculated for a while. I think from their perspective, this was kind of like, as my colleague Dan pointed out, kind of like a math equation, right? It's like, well, we'll take this extortion plot that we, you're coming at us with, expose that, get people talking about that, take the attention away from us. And potentially what it feels like now is, is kind of all this other stuff gets swept under the rug and now we're paying attention to the extortion plot, right. which was was actually about something that we normally take the extortion plot out of it would have been pretty interested in as well. The title of your article is The Dark Side of College Basketball and how this stuff has been going on for a long time. You know, Avenatti was looking to capitalize on an existing controversy. On March 21st, he tweeted a link to a story about the Adidas executives who had been sentenced to prison and he was teasing more to come. He's, you know, something tells me that we've not reached the end of this scandal and it's far broader than we imagined. So he's almost as a, as a threat or something to Nike saying, hey, I have all this stuff on you guys. And he's pointing to this as an example. There's an underlying case going on with Adidas right now involving you know, the college basketball bribery scandal, which has been going on for a while now. But even longer than that, I mean, there have been rumblings and kind of this assumption that these under-the-table payments are happening. I mean, AAU basketball, where all these top prospects play during their high school years, it's a very murky world. These things have been going on. Everybody's kind of assumed it. There haven't been actually members of Adidas and these and these shoe companies put up on the stand as there have been in the past year. So we're starting to get more specifics and names and amounts of money. But this has been assumed to be going on for a while. And so that's kind of what's fascinating to me about this is that Avenatti would, would risk what could be a lot of jail time here to kind of expose something that people kind of already knew was happening. And therefore, I think in a weird way, while we do care and while we will see what the specifics come out of this and, and what does come of it. Tell us what happened with Adidas and how these pay-for-play schemes work. As you mentioned in your article also, when Adidas was going through this, trying to get these students to go to schools that they had sponsored, you know, hopefully they can get us some type of shoe deal later on. They're not bidding against themselves. So obviously we can't say that Nike is at fault for anything 
right now, but this is all something we've known that's going around. But so how did the pay for play schemes work? In short, a shoe company identifying a talented basketball player as a high schooler, basically paying either him directly, you know, a family friend, his parents, whoever it may be, and trying to influence him to go to an Adidas sponsored school. And again, as you alluded to, the whole idea there is that you have somebody playing in Adidas shoes in college, they like Adidas shoes, then they sign with you potentially later on when they become an NBA player. It's kind of this long game of acquiring talent, if you will, and the way they've been acquiring that talent is very shady, under-the-table ways and trying to get prospects to go to certain schools. Sometimes that those payments work, sometimes they don't. But I think on the heels of this Adidas scandal, I don't think anybody really thought that this was just Adidas. I think everybody always knew Nike even bigger than Adidas. Like, they're not going to be left out. They're not going to play that game, too. And, and so I think everybody kind of assumed this was already happening. And I guess now we're right. going to potentially get some more light shed on it. But Adidas is the brand most attached to the scandal right now. But I don't think anybody ever assumed it was just them. Avenatti, the day after he got arrested, went to Twitter and still said, we never tried to extort Nike and the truth is going to come out. The public is going to learn all of it. Avenatti was also charged with bank fraud and embezzlement in California in uh, some other cases, but these New York charges are probably the the main thing. He did not have a good day. Yeah, not at all. Kendall Baker, <laughs> sports editor at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. I think the FDA really just meant this as a warning shot. They were trying to say, look, don't be dumb. Don't manufacture and sell things with these crazy claims on them about what CBD can do. Joining us now is Sarah Overmall, healthcare reporter for Politico. Chances are that you've seen some type of advertisement for CBD, or maybe you've heard a friend talk about it and how, you know, it helped their arthritis. It helped them go to sleep at night. There's even CBD supplements for your pets now. The boom for CBD products are all over the place. And it's actually giving the FDA a big headache with regards to how they regulate it. There's a, a fine line between the difference of it being a drug or it being a dietary supplement. What do we know about how the FDA is handling all this CBD products? The FDA surprised a lot of people. Basically, Congress intended to legalize hemp and with that CBD in a sweeping bill passed in December called the Farm Bill. But the minute that they sent that out, FDA reminded everyone that technically this was their field. It was their turf. And what is interesting about that is that the FDA said that they could regulate it on the grounds that they had already approved a drug that has CBD in it. And so that actually is a legal framework for them, that there can't be a product on the market that is already in a pharmaceutical product. So they are allowed to say to everybody who manufactures something that you take orally with CBD in it, that they all have to take their products off the market right now. So it's left the CBD manufacturers and retailers in this complete legal lim limbo where they don't know if they actually are allowed to openly be selling. The FDA last year approved their CBD-based drug called Epidiolex. It's a treatment for a form of epilepsy. But you're right, these CBD things come in so many forms. It can be something you rub on your hands. It can be like a little tincture that you just spray in your mouth. Shampoos, ointments, drops, it's all over the place in different forms for them to have to regulate it as they would uh, if it was a drug. There's a lot of regulatory hurdles to go through for it to get approved that way. 
Absolutely. And that's really not actually what I think the FDA wants to do. It certainly isn't what Congress or the industry wants them to do. I think the FDA really just meant this as a warning shot. They were trying to say, look, don't be dumb. Don't manufacture and sell things with these crazy claims on them about what CBD can do. And just give us some time to work out a framework that you can put this through that won't mean a lengthy drug approval process, but would mean maybe you get to sell a low-dose form as a dietary supplement, or you know, it can still go in lattes, but let us work this out. And in the meantime, please just don't misbehave. (laughs) And that's really what is at the center of this is the claims that are being made. By and large, CBD is not necessarily harmful to people, although there's not very many studies done on the product itself yet. But I don't think it's necessarily harmful, but it's about the claims that people make when they're making these new products, like it's going to cure your diabetes or it's great for cancer. So these are the claims that they're really trying to get under control and make sure that makers of these products aren't going crazy with that stuff. Definitely. And a lot of the makers of these products, at least the ones that I've spoken to, are very aware of that. And they're trying really hard to be on the good side of the FDA and say, we get you, we're being smart about this, but it really only takes a few bad apples for the FDA to crack down as they have in other industries in the past. And I think on top of that, the FDA and everyone does recognize that CBD by itself is a low risk product. There's not really many ways that you can hurt yourself if you're, if you're using it in moderation and you're not using it, say, to cure your cancer, which is, there is no medical proof of. <laughs> right. But the other two main concerns that they have, besides the medical claims, the other urgent one for them is that people aren't manufacturing and selling something that they say is CBD, but has no such thing in it. And then the other, which is a more big picture concern of theirs, is that they want to protect the incentive for pharmaceutical companies to still keep researching it because they realize that it is a multi-million dollar years-long process to study how drugs work. And no one but pharmaceutical companies is really going to want to do that. And so if they just allow everyone to run free on the market, they worry that we will never get these answers on what CBD can do. But enforcement on this right now is just so tough. You mentioned in your article a couple of things about if you go on Amazon and you put CBD, there's hemp oil even, there's thousands of listings there. If you Google CBD for cancer, there's a bunch of ads for oils. The marketing is already out there and it's being made to be this cure-all. So you can have a product basically tailored to any ailment that you choose. Yeah. And one of my favorite places to check this out is actually on a Reddit community for CBD where they're having this conversation right now too. People will put these claims on there and and they'll argue amongst themselves about it. It really is an interesting dilemma because it's not just about what the FDA can do, which would be to crack down on a specific manufacturer. This is about what the internet is saying and who's going to tell people on the internet to police the claims that they're making. I mean, that is something that across the board, we're trying to figure out for a whole range of issues right now, let alone CBD. So what's the future of this? Because the FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, is on his way out. He's not really going to handle this part of it. So it's going to be left up to his successor. Congress has certainly put a lot of pressure on the FDA, and they're very well aware that after Gottlieb leaves, who he has really been trying to moderate this, trying to assure Congress that this matters to him and the FDA and it's going to be a priority. They're worried that someone else behind him won't make that a priority. So I think what is going to happen is that Congress will continue to up the pressure and say, we really need clarity right now. We have constituents, farmers, manufacturers in our states that don't know what to do. We need you to give them clarity about what is legal in their business. And already I've talked to a few lawmakers that are definitely willing to put the pressure on and just say, at least to the FDA, tell us what you need from us to speed this process up. Because by themselves, the FDA has already said that it would take them at least two years. 
Sarah Overmall, healthcare reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.